Well, good morning and Merry Christmas. Yeah, this is, uh, this is the second Sunday of Advent. We are in the Advent uh, season, and every year, uh, for the last several years, as far back as I can remember, the elders have always created a special sermon series leading up to Christmas. And so we've paused all of our normal preaching programs to deliver and provide a special series, an Advent series, as we head towards Christmas. And as Pastor Steve mentioned this morning, we've called it a Christmas family tree. And we're taking a few weeks leading up to Christmas to talk about genealogy. Now, as long as you don't make it an idol, studying genealogy isn't a bad thing. And I'd be curious to know how many of you have studied your family tree. If you're like me, uh, the wingers have a scroll. It's a piece of paper my mother made about this long, and it has the entire family tree as far back as we can go. Maybe somebody in your family, a grandmother, a mother, an aunt, or an uncle, has pasted together your family tree. Maybe you use some fancy software, or maybe you, you, you just use pen and paper like, like my family does. Maybe you've even been tempted to try some of these new DNA services, 23andMe. MyHeritage, Ancestry.com, or some other DNA service to study some more of your ancestry. A quick swab of the mouth with a Q-tip, and you put it in a vial, and you mail it away, and back comes some interesting information about your genealogy. I haven't done it, but it intrigues me. I don't think I'll do it, but it does intrigue me. Maybe there's even some surprises in my family tree. Maybe there's some surprises in your family tree. And when we read the family tree of Jesus, there's some surprises there as well. And you know that you can read the full genealogy of Jesus in the book of Matthew and Luke from the historical Adam and Eve all the way up to Jesus. And there's some interesting people in that genealogy. And the elders have picked four that we want to introduce you to over this Advent series. Last week, we looked at Judah. Today, Rahab. Next week, Brother Matt will look at Ruth, not his wife, Ruth. And then Brother Adam will look at David. So we ha- all together, we'll have Judah, Rahab, Ruth, and David. Right? All of these people were ordinary people. They were flawed. They were seeking. They were looking. They were looking forward, and they were looking forward to something. As we saw last week, Judah was looking forward. He was looking forward to the righteous one. Today you'll learn that Rahab was also looking forward. She was looking forward for protection and deliverance. And as Matt unpacks Ruth next week, you'll find out that Ruth was looking for a redeemer. And after that, Adam will look at David. What was David looking for? He was looking for a king. All of these people were seeking something, and Jesus was all of these things. Please open your Bibles. Follow along. We're going to examine together Joshua chapter 2. Joshua is very early in your Bible. Moses wrote the first five books of your Bible, then comes Joshua. Um, We're going to look at Joshua chapter 2, and we don't have a lot of time today because we still have a baby dedication that we want to do. So my, my goal is not to find something deep or intricate in the passage. We're simply going to look for what lies on the surface for a thoughtful reader to find. So let's look together. We're in the book of Joshua, chapter 2, and we're beginning in verse 1. Follow along and we read, 
Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, Look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they came from at dusk. When it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, She went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to, Hot, to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Well, clearly Israel is beginning its conquest of Canaan. Jericho will be the first city to fall, and spies have been secretly sent in to gather intelligence. Scripture indicates in verse 1 that they enter the house of a prostitute. Now, some have been embarrassed by this and have even tried to tone it down, but that is what she was. It was a common profession in the region as their religion required temple prostitution. It was a sinful, broken heathen culture. It was a pagan culture. And God is about to use Israel as his instrument to utterly destroy Jericho for its sinfulness. But why the house of a harlot? The spies could have gone anywhere, and the Bible doesn't really tell us why this home. Most people believe they were simply looking for a place where they might not be found. Lots of people passing through. Jericho was at a crossroads. Lots of people on foot frequented the city. This is precisely perhaps the type of home where you might not get noticed. Maybe. I'll explain later my thinking, but for the moment, let me just say that I don't think, I'm not convinced that Rahab was a prostitute anymore. She was not active as a prostitute. And while the two, sp- the two spies were hoping to go unnoticed... The text says they got noticed. They're clearly not very good at this whole conquering and spying thing yet. Verse 2 says the king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So what did he do? 
It says the king sent this message to, to Rahab, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. Now, since they didn't have telephones, they didn't have VHF radio, they didn't have Facebook Messenger, how did the king send the message to Rahab? He sent soldiers, soldiers on foot, knocking on the door. This really is heart-thumping, spy novel kind of stuff. This is dangerous. The king's men could have searched her home and found the spies. How does the story unfold? She lies. She lies. History records that Rahab was a prostitute and a liar. Before we be too hard on Rahab, let's remember she was a sinner. She was looking for deliverance and she was looking for protection. Yes, in the immediate context of an impending attack from an Israelite army, I would want deliverance and protection too. But also in the ultimate sense, she was looking forward to an eternal protection, an eternal um, deliverance that could only be found through a Messiah who turns out came in the form of a baby at Christmas. Surely Jesus is the greatest deliverer. He is the greatest protector. Now the evidence suggests though that Rahab was different than the rest of the people of Jericho and that God had sovereignly ordained this seemingly accidental meeting. I don't believe in coincidences. I don't believe there's coincidences in the Bible. This was not an accidental meeting. This was sovereignly ordained. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that Rahab was credited for her faith. Credited for her faith. That's what the writer of Hebrews 11 tells us. So if this was saving faith, which it was, it means that the Lord had worked a miracle in her heart before the spies had even knocked on the door. And let me explain. Since we know that faith and repentance go together, we must logically conclude that she was repentant. Faith and repentance always go together in the Bible and in our lives. So we must logically conclude that she was repentant of her previous sins and wanted to reform, wanted to change. Repentance always leads to a change in conduct. Changes in the mind lead to changes in the heart, which lead to changes in action. Was there any evidence of this? Any evidence, any evidence at all that she was still a prostitute? Well, since there is nothing superfluous, nothing meaningless in Scripture, it appears the Holy Spirit even wanted us to know the type of straw, the hiding material that was used on the roof. What was it? It was stalks of flax. Verse 6 says she hid them under stalks of flax that she had laid out on the roof. How is this meaningful? Well, gathering flax is actually a, quite a laborious activity. And the fact that she had laid it out on the roof suggests that she was drying it, which would be later used for spinning and weaving. And the type and quantity of straw, enough to hide two grown men, suggests Rahab was actually living a different life. The evidence suggests she was industrious. Now, I know many of you in the room are experts in Proverbs 31. There we see a portrait of a virtuous woman, a woman who fears the Lord, has many defining attributes, but one of them is that she 
seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. Working with flax was the work of a God-fearing, industrious woman. I think we can be assured, therefore, that Rahab was changed. Prostitutes don't gather, dry, sort, spin flax. As Christians, we know that human change is possible. Don't ever let somebody tell you that people don't change. Moral change is possible. It is possible for someone who has done a grievous wrong in life to live a life thereafter that is free from guilt and punishment and shame of that wrong. God is in the business, even in the Old Testament and the New Testament, of using broken, ordinary, flawed, seeking people. He changes them, and he changes us. By divine grace, Rahab was given a saving faith, which accompanied with repentance. It has to. These go together. It was visible in an outward behavior. Rahab believed in the God of Israel. She believed in a new God, a God uh, um, diametrically opposed to the gods of Jericho. In the midst of their horrible, polluted worship, sex-laden symbols and practices, Rahab was able to verbalize and affirm a true theological position of who God is. She passed from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And the the writer of Hebrews makes a tremendous statement. He parallels her, lists her as one of the heroes of the faith. Her faith had teeth in it. They had structure in it. It had strength in it. Remember, if the king of Jericho had ever found the spies, he would have certainly killed her, executed her in the most cruel way possible to set an example. She stood alone in a culture totally opposed to the living God. And for this brief period, she stood for the unseen against the seen in acute danger until Jericho fell. Was she perfect? No. Hebrews 11 does not credit her for her cleverness or her ability to lie or deceive the king's men. It credits her for simply welcoming the spies, for her hospitality. That's it. Lying to the king's men was actually a failure of her faith. God didn't need her to lie. And if you're, if you're a new Christian or you're new to the faith, Rahab was too, and we make mistakes. We still make mistakes, even as mature believers, but this is an example of a, of a, of a young believer making a mistake, and she makes a mistake. Let me put it this way. If God didn't want the men to find the spies, they wouldn't have. She could have let them in. She could have said, come on in, and they wouldn't have found the spies. A sovereign God can do that. Rahab didn't need to lie. What's beautiful about this story, though, is that it is a foreshadowing, too. Rahab Rahab is a foreshadow of God's redemptive purposes. Like Ruth, which Matt will preach on next week, we see that God's redemptive purposes were not constrained to the nation of Israel. Rahab was a Canaanite. They were supposed to be destroyed. But she ends up being grafted into the tree with her entire family, just like you and me. I'm going to conclude with three devotional thoughts. In case you didn't know it, we have much in common with Rahab. We have much in common with Rahab. 
Until Jericho fell, Rahab lived as a pilgrim surrounded by her alien culture. She was an alien in a land hostile to the living God. She was encompassed by the one who was once her king, but is now her enemy. This is exactly how the Christian lives today. And Rahab is an example for us. While believers today may have stepped from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, we are still surrounded by a culture controlled by Satan, who is the enemy of God. We must live in it from the moment we accept Christ until the day we die or judgment comes. Like Rahab, we are aliens in a land hostile to the living God. And it is stupid, it is stupid for Christians not to expect spiritual warfare while we live in enemy territory, especially at Christmas. Of course, unlike Rahab, we have the knowledge of the gospel. And Jeff prayed about that, that God would send his son to be the Lamb of God and be the sacrifice once for all. So we don't have everything in common with Rahab. One more thing that we have that Rahab didn't have, we have the community of believers. We have the church, you the church, to encourage us, to equip us, to disciple us, to hold us accountable. Rahab didn't have that. The poor thing was all alone. It's not all bad, though. Rahab does go from rags to riches. Rahab goes from rags to riches. Later in the book of Joshua, we read that the city of Jericho actually falls. Rahab and her family survive, and they live with Israel. She lives the rest of her life as a citizen of the nation uh, of Israel with God's people. But how did she become part of the ancestral line of Jesus? Why does her name appear in Matthew chapter 1? Well, she was David's great-great-grandmother, but how is that possible? In the story, she's single. There's no mention of a husband. There's no mention of children. Well, obviously, she must have gotten married. She must have started a family. Thankfully, it's recorded in Matthew chapter 1. We see the genealogy. It indicates that she married a man named Solomon. Well, who's Solomon? He's the son of Nashon, one of the great 12 princes of Judah, Isn't that tremendous that a harlot who became a believer ends up the wife of a prince of Judah? She became a princess. All of his riches became hers. Francis Schaeffer wrote in reference to you and me, in having been unfaithful to our creator, is not the whole human race a harlot like Rahab? Is it not fitting that we should be the bride of Christ? By the grace of God, we believe in Jesus and his riches and his righteousness becomes ours. My final thought, God can change anyone. Rahab's story is a dramatic one. It reveals God's willingness to use the less than perfect. What we might be tempted to see as the unsuitable to accomplish his holy purposes. But this is how he works. Throughout scripture, we see what can almost be seen as divine humor in who God chooses a stutterer to lead his people out of Egypt, Moses. A weakling to defend Israel against the Midianites, Gideon. An infertile woman to be the mother of a nation, 
Sarah. A very much forgettable youngest son to be the king of Israel, David. An unknown woman to be the mother of his son, Mary. Unschooled fishermen to be the disciples of Jesus, the disciples. And a persecutor to take the gospel to the Gentiles, Paul. In the case of Rahab, we see a woman with a sordid history. She suffered disgrace and a tainted reputation. She most certainly endured the contempt of others. Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, goes out of his way to draw attention to her and lists it as part of Jesus' genealogy. So if you have scandalous parts in your family history, it's okay, Jesus does too. This Christmas, let us remember that God is in the business of changing people. He makes broken people whole. How does he do it? Through the atoning work of his son. Jesus needed to come to earth from a throne of endless glory to a cradle in the dirt. He came to die. He came in the form of a baby at Christmas. God doesn't wait for us to become completely, spotlessly clean and totally mature in our faith to use us. I think we see that in Rahab. Instead, he takes ordinary people, willing people to accomplish his extraordinary purposes, both in their lives and in the lives around them. He loves to redeem sinners. He loves to produce something beautiful out of sorted family backgrounds. He loves to reconcile enemies. He loves to make all things work for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. That's Romans chapter 8. This is the gospel. This is Christmas. Let us remember that Jesus came to die. Why? To make notoriously unclean sinners like you and me with disgraceful pasts, clean. He makes us clean. And his riches and his righteousness becomes ours. So come to him this Christmas, I pray. Amen.